gather because of that truth that he is ours, available to us by faith through grace. Amen. My name is Justin, one of the uh, pastors, elders here at Peninsula Grace. Uh, we started last week into this new series, looking through the book of Ephesians. We're going to walk through it uh, verse by verse. I had someone last week go, they only got through two verses. Uh, we're going to be here for 20 years. Uh, just chill out, right? We're going we're gonna to pick up some... Pa- this week we're doing four verses, right? We're going to really, really get going, right? Uh, so we said last week, if you're here with us, that according to Ephesians chapter 4 that we'll get to, um, my job as a preacher, as a teacher of the Word, isn't to know God for you. It isn't to, um, to, to serve God for you. My job is to help equip you, to equip us to be able to know God and to be able to serve God ourselves. We said that this is not, we don't line up all the high chairs and bibs and spoon feed you. Here comes the airplane. That's not, we, we are here to feed and to feast on the word, but ultimately uh, to learn how to feed ourselves. This is a picture of my daughter shamelessly every time I can get a chance. I'm going to put her up there. So just get, hang on, 18 years. Here we go. Um, so uh, we have been moving her to solids slowly and just successfully, completely. There's nothing wrong with it. It's all been easy, right? Like the rest of parenting. <laughs> um, my... Uh, my job, just like it is, I'm feeding Lucy right now, but one day we're, we're helping her to learn how to feed herself, is to help not just spoon feed the body, but to help invite the body into the kitchen, to show the body where the ingredients are in the kitchen of God's Word, and to eventually teach how to prepare a meal and feed ourselves. So just to help with this visual, as I look to invite you into the kitchen, um, I stole, without my wife's permission, this apron from our pantry that one of us wears more frequently than the other of us. Who that is, it's neither here nor there. Um, But today, just to help visualize that we're going into the kitchen of God's Word, I'm going to put this thing on. Um, And, you know, really we're talking about security in Christ today. And and I couldn't think of a better way to walk that out than to don a lemon-lime apron. Today's readings will just pop up in your inbox, and you can just click on that and see that day's readings lined out for you. Um, and so I would invite you to, to check out that resource if that would help. But this morning what we want to do is just walk you through a recipe in the kitchen of God's Word. How do we study God's Word? Uh, how can we do this on our own? So I'm just going to take you through what I do uh, and so that you can do the same thing on your own. You have the same resources and you have the same Holy Spirit and the same Word of God as, as I do. And so the first thing we do, three steps. First one's observation. So we're going to look at observation, interpretation, and then application. So observation is simply asking, what does this text say? Now, this might almost seem too obvious, but we start by simply reading the passage. And then we ask ourselves, what do we see? And there's nothing too simple or too obvious to notice about the passage. When we ask ourselves, who is God? Who are we? What's our purpose? Remember last week we said those are the the, the keys that, that he wants to dial us into here in Ephesians. Paul does. That we don't answer those questions of life by looking up and kind of thinking, okay, what do I think that means? We want to have our eyes in the text. I would invite you this morning to have your Bible your, your, out in your lap in front of you as we go through this text this morning. To say, I should be, when we ask, who is God? Who are we? What's our purpose? Our eyes should be down on the text. God tells us who we are, who he is, and what reality is in his word. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to read this passage. If you would stand up with me. We're going to honor God's word, reading of his word, stand in reverence and hear, hear his word. I'm going to read this for us, have ears to hear, and then we're going to go back into the kitchen and unpack this. So Paul, 
writing to the church in Ephesus over 2,000 years ago, said, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in. And then we see the answer, what I saw him talking about, what we receive in Christ, is this central idea in verse 3 that God has blessed us with every blessing. So here's God, who's given us every blessing there is to be blessed with spiritually. And, and, it's found, and, and how? So I, I asked, how are we blessed? Well, the text says, in Christ. That's how we're blessed. What are we blessed with specifically? And it says two things, to be holy and blameless and to be adopted as sons. So we'll unpack those. And then why did he bless us with these blessings in Christ? Well, the text says, according to the good pleasure of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. This is what we're going to unpack this morning in the kitchen of God's Word. And I would invite you to do the same thing. If, if this is, we don't all study the same way, but print off the text. We did this with our small group this last week. Just, we printed off copies of this and then just marked it up. Circle things that stand out to you. Repeated phrases and words and maybe underline the things that seem to be stressed by the author to kind of dial in and say, what am I observing? That's the first step. Second step is to interpret, interpretation. What, what, I just, what I just saw the passage say, what does that actually mean? Because you read some of those things going, okay, I saw that, but what in the world is Paul actually talking about? So um, our seventh-month-old, Lucy, this is not actually her, but thank you, Google Images. Uh, she's our seventh-month-old who just popped her first tooth, actually two teeth, uh, this past week, which is adorable. It's also a pain in her mouth and a pain in our, well, you get the picture, um, when it is 3 a.m. and she is screaming because she's in pain, and I always walk in calmly, like without any sense of frustration on my own. I'm just here to serve my daughter at all times of the night, right? Um, and to remind her, I want to remind my daughter who she is and whose she is. And so you're just holding her there. And you're saying, sweetheart, we love you. Like, we've got you. We're taking care of all your needs. We brought you into this world to take care of you on purpose, and we will always take care of you until you're 18, and then you're out on your own, right? Last week, we introduced this letter that Paul wrote to, like, me as a father with Lucy in, in, in my arms. Paul wants to be a spiritual father holding on to these Ephesians, these young baby Christians, and saying, listen, I want to tell you, I want to remind you who your father is that he loves you, that he brought you into this world on purpose, that he will care for you, that he will provide for you, that you are secure in his love for you in Christ. Now, after we observe what we see in the text and we ask, what does this mean? One of the main ways to help us think about the meaning of the text is to look for the central idea of the text. We call this the aim. The author, every, every author, when you send a text message, an email, write a letter, whatever, you have a reason for sending that information. And so we want to ask, what is the central idea? What's the author's intended meaning? Why did he write this? And so as we look at the passage, we say, what is the main idea of this passage? And that's going to help us make sense of the rest of the, the passage. And what I see, the central idea of this text, is in, right there in verse 3. It's, we're blessing God for blessing us with every blessing. We're blessing God for blessing us with every blessing. And that's the central idea that I think he, he unpacks in the next few verses. Now, the question would be, well, what in the world does it mean to be blessed? All this blessing going around, what does it actually mean? 
Well, one of the tools we have, we, we first look at the context, but then we have other resources at our, at our, at our beck and call to, to know this. So one of my favorite websites, because it's free 99, is blueletterbible.org. And you go to this website, you can type in your passage, and I, so you pull up Ephesians 1.3. And it gives you a bunch of information, but if you go, what does it mean to be blessed? What do they mean by that in their original languages? You don't have to know Greek to, have, to be able to use this tool. You just click on the word blessed. And it brought up several meanings, and we can look in context to see which one this might be talking about. So the first one there is to praise or to celebrate with praises. So when, we, when it says blessed be God, Paul is just simply saying praise God. Like let's celebrate what God has done, what God has given us. And then notice here at the bottom when it says of God, here's what happens when God blesses us. It means to cause to prosper, to make happy, to bestow blessings on, to be favored of God. So he says we celebrate, we praise God for the things that he's done. Sorry. Um, So Paul, he wants to go over and over again 12 times in this one poem. He says in Christ or something like that. And 30 times in this letter he's going to say in Christ or through Christ. So this is something he's keying in here uh, on. But, but because of that, because he's using it so much, we can almost grow numb to in Christ, through Christ, in Christ. It's, it's kind of like people who use Lord at the end, like as punctuation in their prayers. You know what I'm talking about? We thank you, Lord, today, Lord, for this good day, Lord, 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 Lord. Like if that's you, I love you, Lord. But that's, so it's this, this, we got this in Christ, that in Christ. We got here in Christ, there in Christ, everywhere in Christ, Christ, Right? Old McYahweh had a blessing, is what we're getting. But Paul, so Paul, so we can almost lose sight, but we can't because this is the key. This is how you and I are blessed. And this is what we call our union with Christ. And that just simply means that we are one with Christ. That whatever is true of Christ is now true of us in Him. So think about it this way. That's an abstract concept. So I'm married to Jill. And, and you know, they always say when you marry the spouse, you're actually marrying into their family. And so part of this, I now have relational access to a family that I did not have that with previously. So what does this look like? Well, it means that, see, if I was a stranger, had I not married Jill, I would not be just randomly welcomed into their home when I'm in Northern California. They would call the cops on the squatter that's just hanging out in their house, right? That, that, that if they were strangers, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be sending me birthday presents and Christmas presents. They, weren't, they wouldn't come up to visit me in Soldatna in November, which is funny, they've been up here a lot more since March 21st, I've noticed. Can't think of any 18-pound reasons that would be, but that's cool. We, now listen, Paul is not saying that we are Jesus, right? I'm, I'm not Jesus, okay? That's, uh, but what he is saying is that we are one with him. This is why the marriage analogy is helpful. Two have become one. We're still to say our own person. He removes something from us. Our, our, we are blameless, blameless. Now, you're not going to believe this. But was, when back in, in grade school, um, I was a talker. I know. I know. The transforming power of Jesus, right? Hallelujah. And when I would talk at inappropriate times, I suffered the shame of my name getting written on the blackboard. And in Mr. Shields' class, it was three strikes and you're out, right? Now, in my life, I have done a gazillion things to have my name written on God's blackboard. Lust and pride, words that I've said to other people, things I've done to other people. But what, he's, what Paul says here is that in Christ, my shame name has been erased from the blackboard. And that I don't have to go to the principal's office. God no longer blames us 
for the things that we've done that shame us. God no longer, in Christ, blames us for the things that shame us. In Christ, the truth here is that no matter what I've done and no matter what I will do, that name is never going back up on the blackboard. Not only has he removed something, my blameless, my blame, he has supplied something. He says we are now to be holy. So more than just my name getting removed from the bad list, I got my name put on a good list. Do you remember, it was always those kids that never went to the principal's office, um, and then if they, and, and if they read a certain amount of pages, you had to fill up your sticker chart, right? So if you read enough pages out of books, probably, then you would get to go on the year-end trip. And our trip was to go to China Poot Bay across Homer. But you could only go if you weren't going to the principal's office and you, read, you filled up your little sticker chart. Now, Paul is saying in Christ, we get to go to the party. We get to be with our teacher at year's end. Why? Because Jesus went to the principal's office for me. That Jesus bore my blame. That, that Jesus actually did the good thing. He read the books for the, as we stand before God. He does not see what we owed him. He sees what God, Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done for me. But here's the beautiful truth. Not only do I, am I holy and blameless before him, like in his sight, this is actually a process. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the fact that my life doesn't yet look like the picture on the box. This is also promising that one day I'm going to stand before my God and he, in his good work, according to his grace, will, will start to transform me into the kind of person that doesn't do things that bring blame onto me, that bring shame onto me. This is what we're promised in Jesus. We're promised to be holy and blameless. But then number two, it says he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. To be adopted as sons. In the Greek, would, would be talking about male and female, sons and daughters. So my wife, back to the family picture, my wife's um, family, they adopted Steve. He's the one there with red hair. That stands out that he was adopted. At the age of five, um, Steve had been a part of a home prior to, to the Whippermans that he was never sure if he was loved or accepted or wanted. But now, adopted into a new family, he had a new dad who loved him and wanted him. He had a new mom, loved him and wanted him. He had new siblings who always treated him well. <laughs> All analogies break down. He, he was loved and cared for. And listen, he had the same, he has the same standing with mom and dad Wipperman as the rest of Jill and her siblings do. No difference in, in their eyes. Paul is speaking to these spiritually adopted children who come out of the Ephesian foster care system, that they, they were ones who had previously, they worshipped all these gods and never knew if they had those gods' approval. They never knew their standing, if it was secure, constant fear and shame. And, and here's Paul shushing them. The spiritual father saying, Robert Peterson calls this adoption, the antidote to legalism. The antidote to legalism. Because this means that if we're permanently adopted, we don't have to fear that I'm doing enough or not doing enough to keep my father's favor. If I'm going to lose my position as his son, if I'm just acting up too much or he's not going to be able to afford me, he's going to ship me off somewhere else, I can relax into that permanent adoption. And maybe I don't know if that's you here. You come in this morning struggling to actually believe that. Maybe you even know on paper, yeah, 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 I'm always God's child. But oftentimes we can fear and live as though we are 
spiritual foster children that we don't know if, if we have a permanent standing with God or not. Adoption is all about belonging, to belong to a new father, to belong to a new big brother, to belong, and you look around you right now, those who are in Christ in this room, these are your new siblings. We've been invited into a new and permanent family. God has blessed us in Christ. He has blessed us to be holy and blameless and to be adopted as his children. But then why did God do this? Like why, what motivated him to give us such good things? Two things in the text. Number one, verse five says, according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. Or as the New Living Translation says it, this is what he wanted to do. And gave him, and it gave him great pleasure. Here's the good news. Why did God adopt us as children? Because he wanted to. This was not some cold, detached decision of like, okay, I'll rescue you. It's what I have to do. I'm God. God, he delights. Like, like, a, like a child who has wandered away from the home and the parent just wants nothing more than to welcome them back in to relationship and under their roof. So look at me. You have a good father who wants to rescue you. A good father who wants to gather you up into his loving arms now and forever in Christ. He did this because he wanted to, his good pleasure. But then number two, verse six says, to the praise of his glorious grace. The praise of his us in the beloved. The New Living says he poured it out on us. Or the NIV says freely given. And that's the idea, right? If we're praising him for his grace, by definition, grace is unearned. It's unmerited. God freely gave this to us. And that's the reason that he gets all the praise. The reason God alone receives the glory in this passage is because there was no human cause in this and no human cost in this. That I didn't impress God with my own little attempt at a sticker chart. And he looks at me and goes, man, Justin's that awesome? Like, I I have to bless him. That's not what happened. And I didn't buy him off. There was nothing, no, no payment I could make by good behavior or works or alms that would gain a good standing with God that could earn one blessing, let alone all blessings. There was no cause or cost on our end. It was God's cause. God choose, chose to do this. God wanted to do this. And some people say, well, that's cheap grace if you didn't do anything. Well, I'm here to tell you, it might have been free for me, but it cost God everything. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes will not perish. It might be free for me to receive, but it was not free. It cost God his most precious possession. Now, you notice here, did you notice it said God chose us in Christ, that's the hymn, before the foundation of the world? Was anybody here before the foundation of the world? Anybody around? No, good. No liars here. So, what he's saying is, I wasn't invited. This wasn't like I wasn't in on some pre-creation planning committee. Like God wasn't asking my ideas. I'm like, yeah, God, the hippopotamus—that's hilarious. Definitely do that. And you know, yeah, I, I actually you have my vote on rescuing a fallen world through Jesus. Like I wasn't there, and this was not. This wasn't something any of us caused, and it's certainly not anything any of us chose to do. Now I know you hear these words in the text: chose, predestined. And I heard some of you whispering, he's going to talk about predestination. This is the importance of context. In the, in the very the first two verses, he said, Paul, writing to who? The saints in Ephesus. He's talking to the church, the believers. So Paul says to the church that God chose who? Those of us who are in Christ, those who are in the church. And what did he choose for believers? 
Number one, to be holy and blameless in love before him. And secondly, to be adopted as sons. I don't believe that this text is teaching that here that God has chose, chosen certain individuals to go to heaven and therefore other certain individuals not to go to heaven. I think in this text he's choosing that, that these blessings would be given to those who are in Christ. And, and we see this. Uh, how do you get into Christ? Chapter 2 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It says those who have believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior are placed in Christ. And God chose before the foundations of the world that those who are in Christ will become holy and blameless and will be adopted as his children. Now, there are those who have studied the Bible for much longer than I have who disagree with what I just said. Like I said, even on the elder board, we're not even on the exact same place, and that's okay. Like maybe you disagree, and you're sending hate darts with me toward your eyes right now. That's cool. Like I can, there's different ways to read this, right? I'm not going to die on that rock. This is a hard, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man is a tough thing to figure out how to reconcile. But either way, here, here's the main truth, what we do know in this text, that there is nothing we can do to earn God's blessing. We didn't earn this. We didn't, we, it wasn't our cause. It wasn't our cost. And here's the beautiful truth. If that's true, then that also means there's nothing we can do to unearn it. There's nothing we can do to dis- disunite with Jesus. If this was God's choice, that God saw Justin before the foundation of the world, and he knew everything that I would do, right, wrong, and indifferent, that I've done and I will do, and he said, before the foundation of the world, I know him, and I know what his path is going to be. But in Christ, if he places his faith in Christ, I choose that he will become holy and blameless, and he'll be my son. So as we, as we get to know God, as he reveals himself to us in his word, we're going to start to become like him. And so one of the things we want to ask ourselves as we, as we wrestle with Scripture is, how is God changing me with this? What is he showing me about himself, and how does that change the way I live and see reality? Now, this doesn't happen by waking up in the morning and letting my eyes hit the text and flip, 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 and then I'm out the door. This takes time. We've got to let that, that heart steep in the truth that we're reading. And so one of the ways we do this is slow down. And, and one of the things that helps me is ask some questions after I've read through the text. There's an acronym that's really helped me with this, INSPECT. Uh, and so these five, five letters. So I ask myself after reading, is, is there a sin to confess or avoid? Something the passage says not to do, that I am doing and need to confess like we did earlier, or maybe something I'm not doing but need to be weary of not stepping into. Is there a promise to claim? Has God made a promise to me here? Look for that word will. He will do this. And we can claim by faith that promise. How about an example to follow? This is especially if you're reading a story that you're looking, I, need, I want to follow that example or not follow that example, depending. Is there a command to obey? Has God told me something to do here explicitly? And that's what I need to do. It's my marching order. And is there thanks to give? If God shows us truth, to just simply thank him uh, for what he's done. Now, in this, you won't see every single one of these in every passage. In this passage, I don't really see a, com- a direct, there's no c- direct command language. There's no sin that's being spoken of. And, and I don't see a specific example to follow. But I do see a promise to claim, and I see a thanks to give. And so we'll, we'll land the plane there. First of all, there's a promise to claim. I tried to get around this, but it's impossible. We've got to talk about the Lion King. So Simba was supposed to be the king of the jungle, but he listens to the accusing lies around him, and he runs away from his community, from his calling, from his identity. And he's scared. He's scared to go back. And his father, Mufasa, he comes to him in this vision, and he reminds him of who he is. And this, is this is how it unfolds. Simba. Father, Simba, you have forgotten me. No, how could I? 
you have forgotten. Maybe, maybe for a while you thought things were good, sticker chart was looking okay, but then things went off the rails. And you've done things that you're not proud of, you've said things, you've, you, you've, you've been addicted to something, a relationship that was... Not, and, and, and we say, but God, how do I know? How do I know that I didn't overstep my bounds there? And that, that you will... Can I, can I know for sure that you're still for me? Can I, can I know for sure that I'm still your child? And Paul, like our little Rafiki here, he says, remember who you are. Your father did not choose you on the basis of how much you sin or how little you sin or how good you smell. He has chosen you because he wanted to, because he delights in you, because he loves you. And God says, I promise to accept you as my child no matter what. And your name, now and forever, has been erased from that blackboard, and you're coming with me to China Poot. Not because you deserve it, but because forever in Christ, he was good enough for you, he is good enough for you, and he forever will be good enough for you. Hallelujah. But maybe, maybe for you, this serves as a warning. Maybe you've been rebelliously running. See, Simba was running away from his calling. People he was supposed to take care of an important responsibility that he was neglecting. God says here, you're my son, you're my daughter. This is who you are now in Christ. But oftentimes in fear and rebellion, we run away from that. And maybe today the call for you is to remember who you are and to have our actions start to line up with that reality of our identity again. Again, what do we just show here? Over and over again. We don't live that right way in order to earn God's favor. We walk that way because we now have his favor in Christ and are now enabled in Christ to live that new way. Slowly, messily, through grace, we're moving in that direction. People in our lives that we're called to love, the responsibilities that he... Lewis said that praise, it culminates, it, it finds... How to, praise completes our enjoyment. As we enjoy God, we're going to praise him. And not only are we going to praise him in like some closet in some back room somewhere, we're going to praise him in the way that we live everywhere and every day. And so this reality of just simply steeping in who our Father is and what he's done for us in Christ will spill out in our time of steeping with him to go out and live out on mission. That, that our, our praise is the overflow of our enjoyment of, of, of who our God is in Christ. And then we go out into this world. And we share that. Do you know who this God is? Do you know him? And do you know what we have now in freedom in Christ forever? We share that with the world around us. I want to invite you into the kitchen this week. You need to join me in God's word. Would you steep your heart in the truths of the realities of what we have in Christ and overflow into a life of praise to the glory of God? Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you we bless you. We celebrate with praise what you've given us freely in Jesus. That you dumped that, that, that truck of blessings down on us, raining from heaven, everything freely received because of our union with Christ, because he bore our blame and has given us his perfect standing with you. Father, I pray for those in this room that need to receive that truth as a comfort who've been just burdened with legalism, trying to earn something from you that we never could. Father, that they would be released. Would you free them by your truth and receive freely 